Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 will be our verse study this morning. Now we've noted we have now arrived at the midpoint and therefore transition in the book of Ephesians, known as the handbook of the Christian faith. And Paul now begins to describe how the one new man, the new race of people created from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people called the church, is to live out this life as possessors of like promises and shared hope. Now, this transition has been described differently, though validly, almost by every commentator using various phrases like, Paul transitions from belief to behavior. He moves from doctrine to duty. He turns from Christian theology to Christian morality. He moves from explanation to exhortation, from instruction to intercession. These are the few honorable mentions, if you will, of this transition we're now going to experience. Now, last week, Paul concluded in his closing statements of the doctrinal section And he revealed to us the power of love. And he reminded us that God has created this one new race from the two, comprised of both Jew and Gentile, or in a word, the church, excuse me, that the power of love is essential in moving forward as fellow heirs of the promises and possessors of the same Holy Spirit. Now, our reminders last week were these. The power of God's love is revealed through our oneness in Christ. We are one in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. We found also that there is no circumstance where love is the wrong reaction. Even when we have been wrong, we can still maintain and express love for God that is visible to others. Because after all, we found that God is able to do anything at any time, anywhere. Now this is a corporate application, but it's also a personal application. God can create one man from the two, even though humanity was divided into two categories, Jews and Gentiles, for over 1,500 years. God can do anything, anytime, anywhere about our personal circumstances too, because he is the God who sits on high. Amen? Amen. Now this morning we're going to encounter two words that will describe the chapter as it begins here and all the way up to chapter 5, verse 21. And those words are walk worthy. Now we've made the point before, we'll mention it again this morning. The term walk is used for a, a, as a metaphor rather for living your life. We find it again in both Testaments. In Deuteronomy 13, 4, we're told you shall what? Walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments, all the ones you agree with, and obey, and keep his commandments, and what? Obey Obey his voice, you shall serve him, and hold fast to him. And then Colossians says, that you may walk worthy, in 110, of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, this is our subject that is introduced this morning. To walk after the Lord is to walk worthy of the Lord. Now, walk, we already explained. Worthy means appropriately or suitably. It also can mean in a manner worthy of. And obviously that implies we are to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the name that, we, uh, that has saved us. Now, we also need to remember we haven't left the overall theme of Ephesians either. Paul is still dealing with Jew and Gentile interaction as the one new man 
And this will be evidenced by what we encounter in verses 4 through 6. Now, our title this morning is Timely. Our topic is a constant, and it's also a bit of memorabilia. And I was thinking this morning, uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s, you would often encounter hippies doing this. What does that mean? Peace. Peace. But there was another group of hippies that were doing this. And what does that mean? One way, and that is our title this morning, One Way. Now, I heard the story of a man who was pulled over by the police for driving the wrong way on a one-way street. The driver asked the officer, what did I do? He said, well, this is a one-way street. He said, I know, I was only going one way. <laughs> you know, there are lots of people today who seem to have their own definition of one way. And they have incorporated other things into it. And it is culturally popular to say, today that is, that there are many paths to heaven. But the truth is, there is only one way. It's trending in the church to say there are many ways to walk with the Lord, where the fact is, there is only one way. And that is to walk appropriately, or to walk worthy of the one who called us. Now, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, 7.13 to 14 of Matthew, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Someone quipped that um, the fact that there's a stairway to heaven and a highway to hell tells you a lot about the traffic flow in each direction. Now, it is a narrow path that we are on, right? Yes. It is a difficult way at times. We are persecuted, encounter tribulation, and verses 4 through 6 are going to reinforce this as a principle to be recognized by the one new man in every age of church history, including ours. We are to walk appropriately as the body of Christ. Now, the cancel culture that is dominant today has also migrated into the church. Many today don't want the Christianity of yesterday. They don't want the restrictions, so to speak, at least as they see them. I don't find anything in the Bible to be restrictive. I find it all to be freeing. Amen. I've done my own thing. I've lived for myself. I've captained my own ship. And the only thing I experienced was shipwreck. <laughs> God is a better captain of my salvation than yours. Amen? Now, there is only one way to God and there is only one way to live for God, and it is described in our text and elsewhere as walking worthy. So let's see what that looks like through our wonderful verses this morning as Paul transitions from explanation to exhortation. Would you stand and read with me, please? Ephesians chapter 4, we'll look at, as I said, 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And Lord, we thank you for this tremendous passage this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to us in this 21st century where change seems to be the operative word 
of this season and culture. And Lord, we ask that we would remain steadfast in the truths that you have given to us through your word. Speak to us, we pray now. We submit to your will. We surrender our ears to you that we may hear what your spirit is saying. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had one of those situations where you went through something that was extremely hard and you didn't handle it very well? Maybe even mentally you didn't handle it well. And then you met someone who was going through something far worse than you and was handling it much better and you felt kind of silly. That's not a testimony. I'm saying, have we? We've all experienced that, right? Me included. Now, after reading the first three chapters, you have to wonder if the recipients weren't thinking to some degree, uh, Paul, you're asking quite a bit. I mean, come on. Maybe the Gentiles were thinking, uh, you mean we're family now with the Jews who said we were created for the express purpose of fueling the fires of hell? Maybe some of the Jews were saying, you know what, I don't know, Paul, this is pretty tough. These are the ones who thought that anyone who wasn't a Greek are barbarians, and you want us to act and operate as a family? This is a pretty tall order, Paul. And then Paul says, I'm writing to you as a prisoner. I am writing to you as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am exhorting you to be gentle and long-suffering with one another, while I myself am imprisoned through the accusations of the Jews and locked up by the efforts of the Gentiles. Now, Paul was in a house where he could have visitors, but there was a Roman guard chained to each of his arms 24 hours a day, and yet he says, I'm not a prisoner of Rome, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. It is the Lord who has captured me. And I think Paul very quickly puts the whole, what God expects of me is going to be hard thing in its proper perspective, and we should see it that way too. Listen, God has a plan for us. Not just in how to save us, but how we ought to live. And therefore, because we do all things in his power, his expectations of us are not unachievable. And Paul says, as the Lord's prisoner, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. The calling to be a new race of people distinct from the rest of the world. Now the word beseech means exactly what we would think. To uh, passionately implore or to urge someone. It also means, which is more fitting to Paul's context and this letter, it can also mean to summon. Now, think about the difference in those two interpretations or translations of that word or definitions, I should say. We could see it through the lens of some of the mail we get. Sometimes we'll get a piece of mail that has your name and then it says, or current resident. <laughs> or one of my favorites is, you have been pre-approved to apply, like the rest of the planet has been pre-approved to apply. You know that's junk mail, right? Where's it go? Goes right in the trash. However, if someone hands you an envelope and it says on the outside, summons, enclosed, you're going to look at that a lot more seriously, aren't you? And Paul is saying, I am summoning you to walk worthy. I'm placing upon you this directive and instruction. And in 2 Peter 1, 1 through, or 10 through 11, Peter writes this, Therefore, brethren, 
Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, who? Jesus Jesus Christ. Now, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine yourselves to see if you are really of the faith. And this is what Peter is writing as well when he says, be diligent in making your calling and election sure. He isn't saying make sure that your salvation is secure through good works or moral behavior. He's saying you can be sure that you're saved by examining what it is that you do. And when Peter says, if you do these things, you will never stumble, he's uh, pointing back to the previous verses, 5 to 10 of the same chapter, 2 Peter 1. He says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your what? Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness what? Love, a different way to say the same things that Paul is admonishing the church in Ephesus to do. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he, she, was cleansed from what? Old sins. Now, note the progression that Peter presents and the construct of the book of Ephesians. Peter says, faith first, then add these things to it. Ephesians says, uh, believe first, and then add appropriate behaviors to it. Now, this establishes for us that there is a behavioral change in all true believers. And to say so is not unbiblical. To deny that actually is. And contrary to popular opinion today, there's only one way to heaven. And that's through Jesus. And contrary to popular opinion today, there is only one way for a Christian to express his walk with the Lord, and that is to walk worthy or appropriately within their calling and election. Now, we'll talk more about this as we go, but the first thing I think we need to recognize just through a point from this particular section is this. Listen, the sins that condemned us are not part of our new calling. The sins that condemned us are not part of our new calling. And the fact that we need a Savior, and we do, the fact that we need a Savior, coupled with the fact that there is only one Savior, and thus one way to heaven, begs the question, why were the things that caused the Father to send His Son to die on the cross for our sins become acceptable practices within our new life in Christ? How can they be bad enough to condemn us to hell, but after we choose the one way not to go there, they're okay for us to do? Does that make any sense? Now, Paul, obviously, with this group, is dealing with their previous thinking before the creation of the one new man, when the middle wall of separation was taken down by Christ on the cross, making the one new man comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Now, thinking all Gentiles are going to hell and, not, and all non-Greeks are barbarians is not acceptable thinking within the body, is what Paul is saying. It's not to be a part of the mindset of the one new man. 
Now, Paul would say this to the church in Romans 6, 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's his answer? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk out in newness of life. Now, this is what Jesus taught, newness of life. This is what Peter taught. This is what John taught. This is what James taught. This is what Paul taught. There is only one way to view salvation, and that is a change in eternal destiny accompanied by a continual transformation until you arrive home. In other words, when he who begins a good work in you completes it, it will be at the day of Jesus Christ. He's always working on us. Aren't you glad? I know there's people around you that are. I like to describe salvation as this. It's a moment of confession followed by a lifetime of conversion. God is always changing us, always building us up in the most holy faith. And this idea that grace removes any obligation or any type of moral code is a damnable heresy. And I say that because it leads people to a false sense of eternal security and removes any criteria for self-examination. If you've got nothing to look for, how can you know that you're saved Because salvation is far more than just a cognitive recognition that Jesus existed and was a great teacher. And if you don't see any change in your life after you did whatever you were told to express you wanted to be saved, like say a prayer, raise your your hand, walk down an aisle, go out on a field, how are you going to know something happened? Is it just because the pastor told you? But listen, if your life begins to change, if your desires begin to change, if your thinking begin to, begin to, uh, begins to change, your salvation is legitimized in your own thinking, and then it becomes visible to others. Listen, I know it's true because I've experienced it, and so have all of you who've been born again. He changes us, some of us more radically, some of us were really messed up, others were kind of messed up, but everybody's messed up and needs a Savior, right? Listen, I can stand here today and say that whenever I... Uh, used to wake up at night when I, after being drunk all day and waking up in the middle of the night, the first thing that came to my mind is what time I can start drinking the next day. I don't think like that anymore. Ever. It doesn't occasionally slip into my mind. Why? I've got a new mind. I have the mind of Christ. He changed my mind about things I used to long for and love to do. He gave me new desires. That's what he does. That's the business he's in. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're told, if anyone, say anyone, anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things or former things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, sadly for some today, that verse means that things that caused you to need to be saved and initiated the divine response of God sending his son to die so you could live forever, don't matter after you get saved because you're saved by grace. That is a complete misrepresentation of what grace is. Grace is the attribute of God that caused him to send his son. And we have to remember, I see this on social media all the time. God's grace covers our sin. No, it doesn't. God's grace sent his son to shed blood for our sin. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Your sin is blood covered. And it was grace that sent God into his son into the world to die for you and to die for me. Think about this argument 
that we are making this morning and so many argue against. Peter went from a man who denied Christ to a man who preached Christ to the people who rejected Christ and put him on the cross. Peter, even in his first sermon, when it, there in Acts 2, we see him empowered by the Holy Spirit. He said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Think about the last time he had an encounter when he was warming himself by the fire and he was asked if he even knew Jesus. Don't know anything about him. Never met him, not one of them. And then a, a servant girl said, hey, you've got the accent of a Galilean. I know you were one of those who hung out with Jesus. Well, Peter denied it, denied it with an oath, and now here he is facing the same crowd who was cheering, crucify him, crucifying uh, him and telling them that they need to repent of their sins in order to be saved. Think about the Apostle Paul. He went from a man who hated the church to a man who planted churches. That's the business God's in. And listen, those today who say there's no need for you to do anything or to uh, worry about how you live your life because belief has saved you completely misunderstand the concept. It is the transformative evidence in people's lives, like Paul and Peter, that made the Christ denier and the church hater two of the greatest preachers in the history of the church. And it was their own radical transformations that gave them credibility, but it also created for them enemies, and it's going to do that for us today. Why are you so quiet? <laughs> now, John 15, 18 and 19 John the Beloved says, if the world, or Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would what? Love. Love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world what? Hates you. Listen, the world hates anybody that's not like them. Doesn't that imply we shouldn't be like them? Yes. Absolutely. Now, every time I mention something like this, I was thinking about it this morning just preparing my responses to the emails I'm going to get about this. And some well-meaning Christian or some well-meaning Christians are going to email me about this and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You're adding works to belief. No, I'm not. And I agree completely with that statement. I better, it's in the Bible. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But listen, there is a connection between belief and behavior that is inseparable. Think about it. Because of your belief in gravity, your, Im your behavior is impacted. Right? Because of your belief in the laws of motion, your behavior is impacted. Your belief in the principles of physics impact your behavior. Belief and behavior are inseparable. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved, your behavior is how your belief is going to be proven. Amen. Now, this is what Paul is saying as he opens his statement from prison or a house prison, so to speak. So what does walking worthy look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, he describes it very quickly and briefly, but it's interesting, this is even exhaustively in a mere two verses of two and three. He says, this is how you walk worthy. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, 
The first thing we need to do is validate our interpretation of these two verses. As Paul says, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He does not say, and the bond of peace. He says, in the bond of peace. And the reason he is saying that is that the bond we share as a family is unbreakable. We don't need to try and keep it. We are the one new man. That is something that God has done, just like he does in marriage. He makes the two one. He performs a miracle at every wedding ceremony. Aren't you glad for that? Now, we share an unchangeable or immutable bond as a body of Christ. Now, think about it like this. Imagine there's two siblings who become estranged for one another after a disagreement. They don't agree with one another, and the uh, disagreement becomes so heated and passionate that they don't see each other for extended periods. But listen, these things do not change the fact that they are siblings. It does not make them unfamily. They continue in that bond, that family bond that they share. Distance can't change it. Disagreements can't change it. And what happened through their shared parentage cannot and will not ever change no matter what happens on the surface. And the same is true of the church. We are family. Amen. A dysfunctional family. <laughs> but we are family nonetheless. Amen? Amen? Now that tells us that what we are to endeavor to keep is not the immutable fact that we are family, but rather the visible outward expressions of family in how we express love to each other as disciples. Now, in Romans 16, 16, Paul instructs the church to greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. In 1 Corinthians 16, 20, he says to a largely Gentile church, a dominantly Greek church, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a what? Holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Peter 5, 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all you all who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody say, Amen. And I think we recognize in some cultures this is still the norm. It's a visible expression of welcome and greeting. And this is what Paul is saying, that we are to visibly express our love and passion for one another. And here he says that walking worthy of our calling, endeavoring to keep the outward expressions of the one new man is through humility and meekness, patiently putting up with one another in love. Now, the word to bear means to put up with. It has another meaning we'll talk about in a moment. Now, in Greek culture, meekness was considered a character flaw. It was assertiveness and boldness and aggressiveness that was a virtue. Meekness was weakness. But the truth is, meekness is actually a show of strength. Amen. You know how I know? Any fool can lose their cool. Right? Anybody can lose their temper. Anybody can respond wrongly. Anyone cannot put up with other people's failures. That takes no strength at all. But it takes strength to do what Paul is summoning us to do here. In 6, uh, 1 to 3 of Galatians that we studied some months ago, Paul would write this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, expose that to everybody you know and gossip about them constantly. No, you who are spiritual do what? Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. There's humility and meekness. 
considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone, say anyone, anyone thinks himself to be something when he is what? Nothing. Nothing. He deceives himself. Now, he talks about fulfilling the law of Christ. What is that? John 13, 34 and 35 gives us the law of Christ, the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, how do you love one another? Humbly and meekly, putting up with one another. Now, the other meaning of the word bearing uh, is to bear up or to hold someone else up. And both meanings are true and applicable as we uh, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the unbreakable bond of peace that makes the one new man from the two. Now, here's our point, and let me give you a warning. It's packaged a little bit differently, and that's basically, I'm telling you, it's corny. <laughs> but it's corny because that's the stuff we remember. I was thinking driving to church this morning, there's a 30 or 35-year-old commercial that uh, many of you would know the answer to immediately, or, or the commercial would come to your mind immediately if I said, where's the beef? <laughs> right? You will immediately picture that short little old lady at the drive-thru window yelling at the people inside the, whatever, I can't remember who it was for, but I remember her, and I remember what she said. We can always remember corny things. So here it comes. You ready? Oh, come on. That was like three of you. Are you ready? Here we go. Satan kicks us when we're down, and we're not supposed to help him. Satan kicks us when we're down, and we're not supposed to help him. There was a church marquee that said, is stress killing you? Let the church help. <laughs> Chuck Swindoll said, the church is the only institution that shoots its wounded. And I think one of the more interesting factors about this description of walking worthy is its length. It's humble meekness patiently bearing each other up. And the reason being, all that we do when done with these attitudes is going to be done within the confines and constructs of the Lord's instructions. And in Galatians 6, 9 to 10, we're told, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the what? The household of faith. Now, Paul tells the Galatians that the household of faith is to be our primary focus. And today there is far too much time spent in the household of faith, tearing each other down, which is exactly what the enemy wants to do. He doesn't need our help, and we don't need to help him. He only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. When someone is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them. Bear them up. Build them up. Lift them. Don't say the things that we all have in our flesh the tendency to say, oh, I told you so, or you should have known better. We've all done things we should have known better and done it anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I heard some over here. I didn't hear anything over there, but it's true for all of us. Now, the church is family. That's unchangeable. It's immutable. Nothing can break the bond that we share. We're still family when we disagree. Now, listen... Coming in a little closer. You ready for this? Yes. We're still family when we are interpretively estranged from one another. Yes. 
Now that doesn't mean we accept all errors and heresies for the sake of unity. Now one of the main things we need to point out is Paul didn't say we are to endeavor to keep the spirit of unity. He says we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit who is what binds us together. And later Paul will say in 5.11 of Ephesians, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And when something is doctrinally contradictory to the scripture, we do not have fellowship with that unfruitful work. This does not include matters of interpretation or non-integrity of scripture damaging interpretations of portions of God's word, especially pertaining to prophecy. Now listen, if somebody says they believe the rapture is mid-trib, we don't break fellowship with them, even though we know they have a very pleasant surprise awaiting them. <laughs> if someone says God is love and he accepts all loving relationships, marriage relationships as valid, that's heresy and we expose it as such. Listen, Satan kicks us when we're down already. And he doesn't need our help, and we shouldn't be helping him. But he seems to get a lot of help today. And listen, walking worthy is humble meekness, patiently picking each other up when we fall or are down. This is how Paul describes walking worthy. He doesn't give a big long list of don't do this, but do that instead, or don't do this. He starts with the attitude, and if you have this attitude of esteeming others better than yourself, or to remember that you have been cleansed from old sins, this is going to impact how we interact with one another. I think we could all do better if even only mentally. Uh, I, I ran across a guy the other day that um, I, I saw a couple of snippets from his sermons and thought, man, that was, that was good. I got to find out who this guy is. And I wish I hadn't done because I found out that he had done some things that are inappropriate for a Christian to do, and that would include a pastor to do. And then I read a little bit further and wound up that what he was accused of doing and what he paid dearly for was not something he actually did, but somebody said that he did this when he did do something he shouldn't do, but it wasn't in the realm of a physical sexual relationship that he was accused of. And, you know, I, I'm sticking with Abraham Lincoln when he said, don't believe everything you read on the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> right? We, we are quick to go in the wrong direction. And my mind went immediately in the wrong direction. And the, all the wonderful things I'd heard him say were invalidated instantly because of what I read. And we all have a tendency to do that. Let's not do that. Satan doesn't need our help. Let's build each other up and not tear each other down. Amen. Amen. Now, here we come to one of the granddaddy passages in Scripture, uh, the New Testament, certainly, where Paul says this in 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Seven ones. Seven ones listed. And that ought to tell us, because seven is the number of perfection or completeness, that this is indeed how we ought to view our Christian life and experience. Now, some believe this was a hymn. 
Some say this was a chorus to a hymn sung by the first century church. It seems likely that Paul, being a former Pharisee, was looking back to the Shema in Deuteronomy when these words were inspired by the Spirit for him to write. Shema means hear. And the Jews would repeat, and if anybody's seen a mezuzah on the door of a Jew's home, you'll see found inside the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Sometimes it's longer, but always Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, which says, Hear, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? What? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus added to the Shema with all your mind. Now, we're forbidden and prohibited from adding to Scripture. Jesus can do it because he's God. So he added to the Shema to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. Now, the content of what we just read is Trinitarian in nature. It contains all three members of the triune Godhead, and each member of the triune Godhead is then paired with other facts that create triads in the text. One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Father, above all, through and in all. You all is not actually in some manuscripts which would complete the three triads. Now, Christianity is often accused of being polytheistic because of our belief in the triune God. Now, this is easily disputed simply by recognizing that the term God is actually just that. It's a term. It's a title. It's not a proper name. God has a name. His name is Jehovah, amen, or Yehoshua. Now, the argument that we are polytheistic is like saying because there are multiple members on a corporation's board that there are multiple boards. No, you can have multiple members on one board, right? Three distinct personages occupy the office of and bear the title God, which means supreme being. How many supreme beings can there be? There can only be one who's above all others. But the principle of the Trinity is taught throughout Scripture, beginning in Genesis 1.26, actually beginning in uh, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, Elohim. That's the plurality of God in the word Elohim. In Genesis 1.26, we're told, Then God said, Let what? Us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 3.22 of Genesis says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put his hand out and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever in his fallen state, the Lord set a guard to keep man from the tree of life. Isaiah 6, 8, the prophet says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. Now, we could go on and on, but the point is made continually throughout Scripture where we find the triune nature of the one God presented to us, including at Jesus' baptism. We see the Son in the water, the voice of the Father, the Spirit descending like a dove. There's the triune God presented uh, before us. Now, let's break this down. There's one body. There's one church. Amen? There's one Spirit that makes us one body. There is one shared hope in the church that is the one body. There is one who is Lord over the church. And there is one faith that is saving faith. And that saving faith is represented by one baptism into Christ's death. 
There is one God and Father of us all, and He is above all, and He gets us through all because He is in all. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, I toyed with the title all for one and one for all, but I didn't think the three musketeers model was appropriate when you're talking about the triune nature of God. Well, listen, here's what is appropriate as a point from these magnificent verses and our text about the one way. Listen, here's a point of reality that needs to be heard today. One way to heaven takes the guesswork out of getting there. One way to heaven takes the guesswork out of getting there. You don't have to wonder if you chose the right way because there's only one way. And one of the common questions when the subject of religion comes up is how do you know that what you believe is right and other beliefs are wrong? Well, the answer is there's only one spirit. There's one Lord. There's one God. And thus there's one body. There's one hope, one faith, one baptism. And everything outside of that is the wrong way. Now, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, Paul says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we what? live. We live in an age where the fastest growing segment of society is a group called nuns. Not N-U-N's, not those who wear a habit, but rather N-O-N-E-S. In other words, when you have a box on a questionnaire that asks you what your religious affiliation is, the most frequently and fastest growing box in these days is none. I have no religious association no necessary, necessarily uh, belief system. Now, much of this stems from things that are happening in our schools today because that segment also includes the, the significant portion of young people who are just coming out of college. They go in with an association with a belief system that they learned in their home. They come out with what the professors taught them, which is lies and soul-stealing fallacies. Now, I have to say, I always find the arguments that are made today from many in the scientific community, like Richard Dawkins. Do you know who Richard Dawkins is? Yeah. He's a mean-spirited evolutionist who simply tries to make his point by being a bully. He never presents any facts. He just tries to make people feel stupid for what they believe, which is exactly what's happening in our college campuses and classrooms today. Christians are being bullied into silence and made foolish for believing something that is actually true. Now for many, their idol is evolution. And that is what is the driving force behind them today, which denies what we just read in verses four through six. There is one God. There's one spirit, there's one Lord, one faith, baptism, and as we said. Now, the interesting thing to me is that those who say there is no God believe that nothing did exactly what the Bible says he did. They're just trying to eliminate God. They're saying that things just happen on their own. And listen, I think we need to be more confident in what it is we believe. I think we need to be more confident in, in the beginning, God, because if you're okay with that, the rest of the book falls right in line. And we can't be denying the fact that we serve a God 
who can say, let there be light before he creates the heavenly luminaries because he in and of himself is light. That's where there's no need for the sun in the temple when we get to the new Jerusalem for the lamb is its light. Our God can do anything and we need to be more confident in that fact. Yeah, there's one God. And there is one Lord over the church, and he remains today to be the head of the church. And walking worthy now means exactly what it meant when Paul wrote this. It hasn't changed at all. And listen, we have an abundance of what the scientific community would call empirical evidence. Because they make demands over all their hypotheses that it has to be testable, it has to be repeatable, it has to be observable, it has to make predictions, and all these other things. Well, listen, we can see that the Bible's narrative is repeated over and over and over, and it can be testable, and it is observed by billions around the world through the centuries. You know how I know? Because God today is still making dead men live. And we can put his word to the test. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Is that still true today? Yes. Is it repeating itself over and over and over? Yes. Are you observing the transformations in people's lives like we started? You have to be able to see it for it to be legitimized. Now listen, so many things today are sold as fact. And yet we need to hang on to this. And this is what Paul is saying in Psalm 19, 1-6. The heavens declare the glory of God. There's no evidence of a God. Really? Well, the heavens make the declaration that God is glorious. And the firmament shows His handiwork. Day into day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice, God's creation, is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the world, all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of the chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. It's rising from one end of heaven, and it's circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Listen, this is King David writing. King David was not an astronomer. He was not an astrophysicist. He was not a molecular biologist. He just seemed to understand that if God said it, that settles it. doesn't matter if you believe it. It's just true. God is fact. There is one God. And listen, as I said, I, I, I don't see any biblical reason why the rapture couldn't happen between now and Wednesday. It could happen between first and second service. It could happen before first service even comes to an end. It is imminent. It is going to happen without notice. And it's going to happen, I, I pray for me, I'm working on some messages. I've got some upcoming prophecy conferences I'm doing with Amir and some others. And uh, going to be in uh, a city that just might need to hear the message of Jesus uh, on August 7th, and that is uh, Las Vegas. And I'm going to be teaching a message called Unexpected. Because Jesus said, I'm coming at a time where I am unexpected. Therefore, you also be ready for I'm coming at a time where I'm unexpected. I liken that to what he said about the days of Noah. They didn't know judgment was coming until it started to rain. They completely ignored Noah building a boat on dry land for 120 years on a planet where it had never rained. They ignored the evidence. Is that happening around us today? Yeah, it's all around us. So listen, we have to realize we're living in the season of low expectation. 
People deny the rapture of the church. People believe that we have to get the world ready for Jesus to come back. Well, the fact is, Jesus said, I'm making a place ready for you. And I'm going to come and get you. So where I am, you can be also. So yeah, we're living in a season of history, including church's history, that's a mess. But there is still one way. There is one God. There is one Lord. There's one spirit, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one father who is over us all. And that will never change. We're family. Amen. 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 And when we have the little interpretive disagreements, let's not divide for a house divided will not stand. If it's something that has some wiggle room for interpretation, listen, there, there are some positions that I think, where'd you come up with that? That doesn't even make any sense. I mean, that, that, I, don't, I don't get the, the post-trib rapture position. Why would we go up and immediately come back down? I mean, what's the point of that? Just to put on our new bodies? Because we're coming back with Jesus. That's clear in Revelation 19, right? So why would the rapture be just kind of a boring and you're right back here on earth with him? To me, that doesn't make any sense. But if you believe that, I'm not going to say you're going to hell. I'm just going to say you're going seven years before you think you are to heaven. Personally, is what I believe. So listen, let's be gentle, humble and meek as we interact and deal with one another. When somebody's having a problem, let's make sure we're there to pick them up, not kick them when they're down. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. We thank you for the things we have seen and heard and learned. Thank you for the examples in Scripture of the transformative power of your Holy Spirit at work in one who was once your adversary, one who was your uh, denier, and yet we see them with such magnificent boldness. I pray that over this church and any who are watching online, that we would have the boldness in this time of low expectation to speak the truth, but to do it in love. And help us in that, Lord, we pray. Help us to see there is one God and Father over all, and to speak that boldly and unashamedly in these last and perilous times. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to transition with Paul from what we believe to how we ought to behave. And we thank you also that he began with the interaction of the one new man made from the two. And we thank you that middle wall of separation is still down today. There is one church and one head of it. And that's your Son, our Savior. We bless your name. We honor you in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.